body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Today, continuing in this message series entitled, for the Lord, it is how we can honor the Lord with our sexuality, and we're getting towards the end of it. This is part number seven, and we've been—it's been quite a journey. And I—I uh, I have so been appreciative of just the warm wishes and the encouragement from all of you. I know this is difficult because of you know just the pushback that I have received over over even just my own ministry moments and stuff like that with people. And so this is something that all of us need to learn and grow in of how we can honor the Lord with our our bodies, and up to now, parts one through six have been a lot of information, a lot of defining words, and, and what does this mean, and, and, and you know, how is our approach towards that going to be, and, and our perspective, and really today, we begin to kind of shift gears in the, the final two parts of this message series, this Sunday and next, where we're looking at what is the church's response. Now, next week, I'm going to dive deeper into some of the miscellaneous things, the things that maybe I felt that weren't hit well enough or I could add a little bit more to, and even answering some of the questions that we didn't get to in the Q&A time a few weeks ago. And so I, my hope is to kind of let next week be a little bit of rapid fire, a little bit of landing the airplane, so to speak. But today, I, I don't want to move forward without possibly bringing some correction and some clarity to what our response as believers, the church, should be to all of this. And when I say all of this, I don't mean an issue, not the LGBTQIA issue. If we look at it that way, we're only going to see people as a problem that need to be solved. And that's not how God sees you and me and all of us. God sees us as beloved creation and children, and we don't see people as problems to be solved. We see them as, as people that God has died for, that he lives for, that he calls all of us to be in relationship with him, as precious, as beautiful, indispensable, as being the, the prize of Jesus and his sacrifice for, that he gave 2,000 years ago. And so what is our response when we come into conversation of anything regarding LGBTQIA, the community, the, the, the movement, if you will, but more than that, what do we do when we're sitting across the table from somebody who we disagree with, who our, our stance biblically is different than maybe what they believe or maybe what they believe and are living out? What do we do in that scenario? And that's what I want to focus on today. So much has been information. Now my prayer is that our, the heart of the matter, really where the rubber meets the road, that we can, we can begin to rally our hearts around how God wants us to respond. There's, there's four main perspectives that I want us to have and, and really have a tremendous precision on today. And the first one is one that we daily need the Holy Spirit's guidance in order to do this well. But before I dive into that, I want to let you know that I'm going to have up here in a moment my son. He, uh, amazing son, I love him so much. One of the things that he does that's neat is he's able to solve Rubik's Cubes. 
And I've tried and tried and tried, and I just can't figure it out. No matter what, I was the guy that would want to take the stickers off, right? You know what I mean? Like, I solved it, and all the stickers are curling and stuff like that. But Micah, about a year ago, picked up solving Rubik's Cubes, and he learned it in a day. He just watched some YouTube videos, and I came home, and he's like, I learned this. And I'm like, what? And he showed it to me, and he was good then, but he's gotten so much better over the year. And everything he has in his room, all over everything, is Rubik's Cubes. There's different versions of it. There's Lego versions of it. There's, there's you know, ones with really big ones that have multiple, multiple angles to it. There's some that are small and simple. And uh, so uh, he's all about it. He's practicing his training, and maybe one day you'll probably even uh, look forward to going to some competition with you and being a competition dad, and uh, it'll, be, it'll be cool with that, but um, there's this video that he recorded on his phone uh, about a, a few weeks ago, and he hit his record, and he recorded it, and I love not only the record, that's cool, but I love his response at the end when he looks at the clock and realizes that he hit his personal best. Go ahead and take a look at this video. I love it. That's insane. That's insane. Done. Like, how do you do that? So I actually wanted him to try to, to do that again just to show us in real time. Micah Cohen, come on up here. Give it up for him. Cube master extraordinaire. Okay, so uh, Micah, in all of cubing, is that what they call it? Sure. Okay. So in all of cubing, uh, they have all these algorithms, these algorithms that you can learn. In fact, we actually have a picture here. This is just some of them. How many algorithms are there that you can use to solve a Rubik's Cube? About 500. Okay. So about 500 different mathematical equations and algorithms that show us how to solve a Rubik's Cube. How many do you know? About 20. About 20. So he's able to do that with 20 algorithms, with 20 moves, if you will, and, and, it's, and it's so much more mathematical. I always just thought it was just color and you just kind of feel it out. It's not that, which is why I can never solve it. It's so much more mathematical than that. And so what is the, the all-time personal record of, and show everybody the three by three. So the three by three is what we know, anybody that's from the 80s or 90s as the Rubik's Cube. They, they're more complicated now, but it's you know three blocks by three blocks. The so three by three, what is the all-time personal best record that's out there right now? 3.47 seconds. What he just did, 3.47 seconds. That's insane. Now, what is your personal record? 13.9. 13.9. That's what he got in that video right there, which is, again, absolutely amazing. And so I want you to go ahead and scramble that up. How many times do you have to move it or scramble it for it to be considered scrambled? Something like 40 times. Something like 40? They generate like scrambles on a website and then. Okay, so if I wanted to mix it up, it's gotta be 40 moves or so? Something like that. Okay, gotcha. So I'm gonna have you solve it here. We're gonna put this up on the screen and uh, he's gonna go ahead and solve this. Well, hold on just a second. So I'm gonna trust you. Just give me... <laughs> I don't know what kind of switcheroo or some crazy crazy that you're doing over there. I'm not gonna let you just come up here and Pretend. I can't even move it fast. As fast, I'm going as fast as I know how to go. And this is a speed cube. I don't know how to go fast. Okay. Okay, hold on. Give a second. 
Let it breathe. Make sure your fingers are warmed up. He's looking at it. Guys, there are people that can solve this blindfolded. They look at it, they memorize it, they use the algorithms and they can solve it. You start whenever you're ready. Awesome. All right. What's your time? 26.09. 26.09. So not quite the record, but still, guys, amazing, right? Yeah. I'm curious, how many of you can solve a... No, let me rephrase this. How many of you have actually solved... Not, I can do that. How many of you can actually solve a Rubik's Cube? Just a curiosity. Oh, all right. We got the cubers in this, in this room right now. That's fine. That's good. First service, there was one very shy person barely putting their hand up. So that's good. He can solve it with his feet. Yeah, he just take, he just, it takes a lot longer, but can solve it with his feet. You don't want to touch it afterwards, but he can do that. So uh, that's awesome. Guys, give it up one more time for Mike as he heads back. Great job, buddy. Good job. I told him, I was like, hey, you're, uh, you're up. And he's like, what? Let's go. And so he's been practicing and all that stuff. Great job, man. That, that's so cool. I, I'm just a proud papa. I just I love seeing that. And especially it's something I can't even begin to wrap my mind around. But uh, up here, he left his cube up here. And this, this is, uh, you know, it's a great game. It's been fun. It's been years and years of people trying to solve it and competitions and things have ramped up. But my, the reason why I wanted him to do that is... I, I, my concern for us moving forward, now that we have more information and a little bit better understanding of Christian sexuality and, and, then, and then the counterfeit of Christian sexuality, my concern is that we are going to look at people and at situations like a Rubik's Cube. We're going to see it and go, what is the algorithms, what are the things that I need to say in perfect order, not out of step, that will solve and fix the issue, that will you know, that'll make the person think right, act right, be right? See, because the, the reason why I'm concerned about this is this is usually the default of Christians and of churches, of pastors, of leaders, is, okay, so we have truth, we have the word of God, it doesn't change, we know that. God's character doesn't change, and so we should be able to read the word, find the exact scriptures in the exact order, the right magic formula, and that is going to be the equation. And anybody that comes in or that we encounter from this point forward, we can create policies and procedures. We can create a a flow chart that if they identify as this, then this is what we tell them. If they are living this, then this is how we correct them. If this scenario comes in, this is how we handle it. who handles it. And certainly there is good next steps that we need to know, especially as church leadership. You know, we have bylaws and we have, you know, articles of faith and and what we believe and and as things arise and as scenarios arise in our church life, we are going to, with faithfulness as church leadership, have to to minister to that well, right? We, We cannot be a church that allows sin of any kind 
gay or straight, it doesn't have anything to do with sexuality of any kind. We can't be a church that ignores sin and allows it to be unchecked in our, in our gatherings and in our midst. It's, it's something that God is very clear about. And so how do we correct, how do we live in such a way and to, if you will, protect our values or to make sure that, that nothing goes off the rails. This is what people want to know. They want to know the if-then kind of flow charts. If this happens, what are we going to do? If someone that's transgender comes here, what bathrooms do they use? And if a gay couple, let's say a lesbian couple comes here and they have kids, how are you going to break up their family or are you not going to break up their family? This is where our, and many more like it, our thoughts go to because oftentimes we want to just get to the fix get to the solve. Just tell me what we need to do, say, think, and we can argue about that, or we can, wor- we can go forward with marching orders, and that's all we have to worry about. My concern is that we are going to look at what should be a relational connection, and we are going to treat it like a Rubik's Cube, that it can just be solved with data and with the right steps and the right moves. Now, we need to have good, healthy wisdom and boundaries in place. There is answers. I'm telling you right now, just like a Rubik's Cube can be solved, biblically and through the grace of God, there's answers to every single thing that you and I and anybody else goes through. I'm not saying for one moment that someone's personal story or what they're going through trumps what God has to say. No, God has the answer every single time. But if we approach people from a perspective of they are a problem that needs to be solved, and we develop processes and, and things around that that will help us just solve people, we're not gonna be listening. We're not gonna really be ministering. We're just going to be trying to fix a problem. I put it this way. They, this is not a problem, quote unquote, it's not even really a problem. Again, that's, that's the wrong language, but this is not a problem that can be solved by church bylaws, a court, a cordial arguments and even conversations, morality politics, in-depth leadership training, if-then uh, conditional statements. They can, these things alone cannot bring freedom to people. Having all of the, the best Thoughts laid down on paper is not going to walk people towards freedom. They might be a part of it. It might be an element of walking people towards freedom. But we can't see people as a spreadsheet of things that we need to solve, an algorithm that needs to be applied. If we do that, we are going to miss what's right in front of us, the beauty and the blessing that's right in front of us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. And when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Again, church, we're great at saying, oh, your next step is this. Go to that class, read this scripture, do this, do that, and then you'll be free. Do this, and you will understand everything. And you'll no longer be you know, tempted by the things that you're tempted by. It says here that when one person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Right here is what we need as Christians. We need to be spirit-empowered believers living in a day and age 
that is increasingly growing darker and darker. To clarify that, in, in the simplest of forms, every single one of us as Christians already have the Holy Spirit residing on the inside of us. That is a promise from God. We didn't get a junior version of the Holy Spirit or a little tiny bit. When we became saved, the Holy Spirit took up residency on the inside of our hearts and goes with us wherever we go. But there is a difference between Christians who have the Holy Spirit on the inside of them and Christians who daily cherish and develop that relationship with God that says, as an example, Holy Spirit, God, thank you for being with me. God, I want to hear your voice. Today, will you lead and guide me? Today, will you show me someone that I can minister, someone that I can bring your goodness and kindness to? A spirit-empowered life is not so much about obtaining something that nobody else has. A spirit-empowered life is choosing to daily actively participate with God. To say, God, I need you for every scenario that comes into my path. Every person, every, every problem, every, every adversary that comes my way, I need your words of life and of godliness to be able to live according to what you have for me and for others. This is why I'm concerned about the Rubik's Cube approach. Because it's so much cleaner and easier for us to have a set of rules, for us to have a set of, uh, like a user manual, that this is how we're going to handle every single situation that comes in. And when you do that, you can kind of keep your hands clean. It becomes a sterile approach. No, 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 no. Just do these six steps, and then we can talk. Do this, and then we can minister with each other. Do this, and then you can volunteer. I'm concerned that that is maybe at times what this church and certainly other churches has become. And I think what God is calling us to, especially as things are becoming more twisted and culture is becoming louder and more abrasive, particularly in this topic, I think what we need more of is spirit-empowered believers saying, Holy Spirit, give me a word to, these, to the people that are around me. When you encounter that person that says, I am same-sex attracted and I'm struggling with my attractions, I'm, I, I messed up last week, I messed up last night, what do I do? What we don't need to do is throw the book at them, we need to know what the word of God says, and we need to be in step with the Holy Spirit, and in that moment, God is faithful. He will lead us. He'll, with a still small voice, oftentimes speak to us. Maybe it's a prophetic word. Maybe it's a word of knowledge or of wisdom or word in tongues, interpretation in tongues. Maybe it's laying out of hands and a miraculous moment takes place. Maybe there's a healing. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to dictate what it is, but what I know is it is so much more comfortable to remain distant to remain sterile and to just give people the six steps that they need than it is to actually be engaged with them and their story and be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. So please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we shouldn't learn more. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have difficult conversations as believers as to how we get there and what we value. We need to continue to do those things. But in the process, we shouldn't become so reliant upon man's knowledge that we are no longer hanging on every single word of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm telling you, a moment in God's presence will bring freedom. And when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Seldom do you hear people intellectually argued into the, into the kingdom of God. 
they have a touch and an encounter with the presence of the living God. And we have the privilege of being able to be, oftentimes, the conduit of that, touching that presence of God, because he resides on the insides of us and desires to partner with us. I know this is uncomfortable because we're good at creating doctrine-ish. We're good at creating you know, all the different layers and hierarchies and things like that in churches. We're good at it. But what it's done is it's built us up into a, like a strong tower of our own making where the walls are super high and built strong and no one who needs, desperately needs God, no one can get in. We've protected us for no more. We're gonna be clean. We're gonna be holy. We're gonna be sanctified. And when those people clean themselves up and figure their act out, then they can join us inside of our strong tower. And I think God's saying, hold on, what if you went into battle, not against that person, but for that person? What if you went into battle fully equipped by me, the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you every step of the way to give guidance, to give peace, to give strength, to give the words that you need to be a conduit of my love and my blessing to that person that I so dearly, dearly appreciate and love and value. And so the first one, again, perspective is that we need the Holy Spirit's guidance every single day. Number two, repentance should be the message. So in this summer, we... I led a class for parents of LGBTQIA plus kids. We had about 30 people-ish involved with it every single week, all summer long. About half were from Radiant, half were not at Radiant. And so it was really good. We got to hear a lot of, a lot of different backgrounds and, and a whole bunch of different stuff, and we got to connect. And it was just good for everyone to hear their stories and understand that they weren't alone as parents. And there's so many good things that came of this, but about three-fourths of the way through, I was starting to get really frustrated, uh, I'll be honest with you, with God. Like, Lord, you told me to do this. I'm being faithful. This is harder than nearly anything I've done up to this point. So why does this thing just seem to be like we're, our, our wheels are spinning in the mud? Because we kind of got caught in this no man's land of, at the end of the day, can a gay person be saved? This is normally the first question that comes up. Or should I go to a gay wedding? Or, you know, like, you know, is it okay for me to, to you know, celebrate or be, you know, encouraging someone that's gay? It just kind of keeps coming back around the same mountain over and over and over again, just circling it. And we had half the people that were like, no, it's, you know, re- repent and righteousness and all that kind of stuff. You had half the other people going, I don't, you know, I understand what the word of God says, but I'm just going to love people. And, you know, you could feel the pendulum swing every single time, you know, someone talked. It would go from, you know, like hyper grace where there's, you know, there's really no conviction over and then swing over here where it's all about repent and do the hard work. And if you really love God, this is how you'd live your life. And it just kept swinging back and forth. And I, and I felt like I couldn't navigate like I was trying to fly, in a, fly an airplane, but my eyes were closed and I couldn't figure it out. And so I was frustrated and I was complaining to God as I often do. <laughs> and I know you guys don't do that because you're holy, but uh, I was complaining to God. And I was preaching a message one Sunday. And I remember I was literally standing right 
here preaching and the Lord just dropped this uh, a verse in my heart and immediately brought clarity to it. And I was so excited. It had nothing to do with Sunday morning. It had everything to do with that Tuesday. And, and I was like, I, my mind, I was like, I just want to finish up this message because I want to get to Tuesday. And so we get there and I share this. And I'm not saying like when I shared it, the light bulbs went, up, went on for everybody and they were like, oh, pastor, what an amazing word from heaven. Thank you. But I do believe it brought clarity. And I do believe it not drew a line in the sand, but I believe that it drew us closer together. Even though we weren't necessarily uniformed and, and, and we had perfect conformity to that, we had unity and some language moving forward. It was important. And God did exactly what I was asking him for and all and so much more. And so I want to share that word with you. It's Romans chapter two, verse four. Or do you not presume, oh, the, back up here, this is, um, this is talking about abusing grace. Do you not presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so with that image right up there, the scripture right up there, so many people know this scripture, they love it. It's the kindness of God that leads us to the repentance. And we love it because it's a good message to be kind. The word kindness is bold right there. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And so that's where most most Christians stop. And in fact, I would venture to say that there's probably maybe about half of us here in this room right now that might be a little bit thrown off by what I'm going to say next. The, the word that I felt the Lord clarify in my heart was not that we shouldn't be kind. I mean, let's just settle that right now. We as believers need to exemplify all the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, kindness being one of them. So the argument is not should we be kind or should we not should be kind or not be kind. That, that's settled. That's done. We need to show love, joy, kindness, goodness, gentleness, patience, long-suffering, self-control, all of the fruit of the Spirit. So the question is not kindness, but is maybe are we possibly overemphasizing the wrong word? Most of us would say, hey, God told me that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, so I'm just going to be kind to people. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be loving. That's it. I just need to be kind, and that's my Christian responsibility. And what I feel the clarity that Lord is bringing even now and all the more is that the boldness should not be on the word kind, but on the word repentance. The boldness should be on the word repentance. So many people stop at kindness because it feels good, it sounds good, it preaches good, it's received good. But the word repentance has such a dirty connotation to it. That, that, that sounds like judgment, that sounds like I'm, I'm condemning somebody. But what God began to reveal to my heart on that is I use kindness, God first of all is kind to us, but because we are called to be examples of Christ to the world around us as Christ's followers, that means we are kind. It's our kindness, God's kindness, that leads people to repentance. God's saying the purpose of kindness is not just to be kind. The purpose of kindness is that it would lead people to a place of repentance, and this is where oftentimes the conversation unravels and falls apart. Because you have half the room that wants to just be kind. And you've got the other half that wants people to just denounce their sinful ways. And God's saying it's actually both. Kindness towards people with the purpose of leading them to repentance. And so for us, when we look at our lives, by and large, 
are people turning to the Lord, away from the Lord, or there's no change whatsoever? And I say it like that because even Jesus acknowledges that not everybody that we minister to is going to respond. He himself, in the parable of the sower, talks about basically only one-fourth of the seeds of ministry that you put out is actually going to produce a harvest of any quality of quantity. And so Jesus is saying, not everybody you talk to that you show kindness to is going to repent. Look at Jesus himself. He had thousands of people that followed him, the masses that he fed that were surrounding him, but on when he was persecuted and when he was being uh, crucified, even his closest disciples left him. And then when they were waiting for Jesus in the upper room, there was only 120 people. Not everybody you encounter and talk to and minister to is going to repent. I understand that. But if you look at kind of like, think of a boat, the wake that's left behind you, by and large, when people get done talking with you, interacting with you, are they closer to Christ? And are they closer to recognizing that they are in need of a savior which causes them to repent? Or do they somehow walk away with a false assurance that what they're doing is okay and there's no big deal? It is the kindness of God and it's meant to lead us to repentance. If your ministry, your words, your actions doesn't point people towards repentance, I would venture to say that you're not living your life and doing the job of the ministry the way that God wants you to. I'm thankful that there was many preachers in my life that would stand with conviction, either on a platform like this or in a smaller setting, one-on-one, and they would tell me, this is going to kill you. This is hurting you. This is hurting other people. You need to repent. You need to lay this down and submit your heart to the Lord, which is why for the Lord, our sexuality, our bodies is not meant for sexual morality, but it's meant for the Lord. Leading people to repentance. Think of it this way. This is the question you can ask yourself. Who's being elevated because of your kindness? Is that person being elevated? Hey, it's okay. Man, we all mess up. It's okay. God loves you. It's all fine. Like, it's, it's good. You're, you are loved by me and God. That person's being elevated. That's weak. That's, that's cheap. That's not the full picture. Maybe you're being elevated. Oh, man, it feels good to not be one of those judgy Christians, to not be like the other church that treated them poorly, but to be the church with arms open wide, right? Like, it feels good, like, I'm that kind person in your life that will lead that. So maybe it's that person being elevated. Maybe you're being elevated in your statements. But ultimately, Jesus is the one that should be elevated. And any time that you look at Jesus, his word And what he's called us to, it is like a mirror that we look into and we can see the discrepancy between what he's called us to and how we're living. And that mirror should bring us to the place of repentance. So who in your conversations, in your social media posts, in your community groups, who's being elevated? Other people in their sinfulness, you in your sinfulness, or Jesus in his holiness? Oftentimes, people because they have sin in their own lives, will not address other people's sins. And granted, we have verses in like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, hey, take the log or the plank out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. And people misuse that and misread that and go, hey, 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 whoa, 
I've sinned, you've sinned, we've all sinned, who am I to judge? But that's not what Jesus was saying. He didn't say, because you have a plank, don't remove the speck. He said, remove the plank. So in other words, daily, sometimes minute by minute, depending on how the day is going, repent for what you're doing, run back to the arms of Christ, let your heart be healed so that you can have a clear perspective and precise hands like a surgeon so you can remove the cancer of other people. How, how, how can we, because we have sin in our own hearts, how in the world can we say, I'm not going to help somebody who is dying, possibly going to hell. How can I sit there and not want to help them because I'm unwilling to repent of my own sin? That is a terrible conversation. That's a terrible life perspective to hold, that I'm going to withhold the mercy, the grace, and the truth of God from somebody else because I'm unwilling to repent of my own sin. Jesus himself said, take that log and that plank out of your eye so that you can remove the speck out of the other person's eye. And so to that point, do not silence the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit or sabotage his transformative work because you're a hypocrite. If you're a hypocrite, Stop being a hypocrite, repent, turn from your wicked ways and know that God is faithful to forgive you, to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. Don't allow hypocrisy to be the end of your story. Bring that to Christ, let him heal it so that you can be a minister of the goodness of God to other people. But so many times we silence the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit to other people because we're like, oh, I'm a hypocrite, I can't do that. Get your heart right and then share the, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Share the truth that's found in the word of God that will set people free and point people to Jesus. So oftentimes we stop short at you sin, I sin, we all sin. Because it's a lot easier to not go there for your own heart than it is to do the hard heart surgery on your own life first as you bring the goodness of God to other people around you. So don't silence the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit or sabotage this transformative work. If you really love that person, maybe it's your child or a friend at work or, or someone that's in your life, if you really love them, you'd bring life-altering, saving, blessing truth to that person. It is a false version of love to say, hey, I'm not gonna be judgy. I'm not gonna condemn, like, hey, you know, I'm just gonna be kind. It is the kindness of God which is meant to lead people to repentance. And I'll say, you know, we, we, we pride ourselves oftentimes on having right theology and right kind of perspective, but man, this has creeped into our church and any church more than I'd like to admit and more, certainly more than I even realized in talking with many good, God-loving, God-fearing people. I can't tell you the amount of times it comes out of their mouth something like what I mentioned before or, hey, everyone sins, who am I to judge? This banner that, is, that we run and hide under, this new theology that has, that has been so embraced by Christians, especially as of recently, it is doing three terrible things. The first thing it's doing is it is celebrating sin. And we are told in many places, but especially in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, that we, if we celebrate sin, then we're right in the middle of sinning with, with other people. 
So we cannot celebrate sin. Well, I would never go to a pride parade. I would never celebrate it. Yeah, but if you're withholding truth and you're saying it's okay, like, hey, I'm, I don't really know and I'm not really trying to step on anybody's toes, in some regards, you are celebrating it. And even if you don't see it that way, maybe I can put it this way. The second thing it does is you are spiritually causing the church to become impotent. The church should spiritually be reproducing itself growing, becoming stronger, healthier, more refined, more holy, more sanctified, developing spiritual believers, drawing people in and growing in. If we are unwilling to stand with truth, certainly through the lens of kindness, but if we're unwilling to stand with truth, then what are we doing? What are we reproducing? We're not reproducing disciples of Jesus and of his word and of his spirit. We're producing disciples of ourselves and disciples of Radiant Church or of any other church. I don't want us to become impotent or, or in any way that does not produce spiritual generational blessing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 talks about this, that for us, we need to develop and grow and bless. For my children, I am trying to teach them things that I didn't necessarily know, that was struggles for me, that I'm still growing in, but I want them to have a better footing than what I had. And my parents did that for me, and I'm trying to pass on a blessing to my children. This is what I want to pass on to people that are around me, not the same old lies and bondage that they've bought into since day one. The third thing that everyone sins, who am I judge, theology does in our life is it leads, oftentimes through confusion, it leads people to their slaughter. We read this in Matthew chapter 18, verse six. Let's not forget that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And Jesus requires not only that we believe that he was raised from the dead, but also that we confess him as our Lord, which means he's in charge. He's in charge of, yes, our sexuality, gay or straight. He's in charge of our actions, of our finances, of our character. God, whatever it is for my future, for how I conduct my life, everything that I am, the totality of who I am, it belongs to you. And so if we're not preaching a gospel that says Jesus that loves and accepts you right where you're at, and because of that love, brings you closer to him in sacrifice, closer to him in relationship, closer to him in lordship. If we're not preaching lordship, what are we preaching? It's all good, don't worry about it, and we're letting people unknowingly sit in church pews and be a part of the Christian family and all the while not really going to heaven. And this is not just about LGBTQIA. This is across the board. If we are unwilling to, out of kindness, lead people to repentance, do we really have a strong conviction in what we're saying to begin with? I've seen people that they've confronted people that are deeply caught in sin, but they only confront it to the level of, I love you, I'm here if you ever want to talk, like, hey, you know, I don't really agree with it, but I really hope that, you know, hope that at least you're safe, right? Someone that loves somebody will say, you're killing yourself, you're hurting these other people, this is destroying your relationship with God, let me show you what the word has to say, let me draw you closer to Jesus, not to myself, not to yourself, but to Jesus, and so again, 
This theology celebrates sin. It, cel- it spiritually causes the church to become impotent. And it leads people through confusion, oftentimes to their slaughter. This is real. The kindness of God is meant to lead people to repentance. Looking behind your life and around your life, are people walking closer with God after encountering you, or are they walking further from God? That was number two. Number one, again, was daily we need the Holy Spirit's guidance. Number two, repentance should be the message. Number three, boldness and the truth is required. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 through 5. Preach the word. This is, this is what he's telling us to do. In this incredibly broken, dark, twisted, increasingly evil world, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove and rebuke. Stopping right there. This is what I mean by kindness of God leads people to repentance. Kindness of God is not just a hug, a latte, and a little kiss on the cheek. We are to preach the word, ready in and out of season, reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. There it is, complete patience, exhortation, teaching, actually slowing down enough to to help people understand, walk with them, hear their story, have kindness. This is not an either or. We can do both. Kindness and repentance is what God is calling us to do here. Verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, this is all of us talking to Christians, as for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Be sober-minded. Don't be distracted. Don't be confused. Don't be circular in your thoughts. God's truth is God's truth. It brings freedom and hope. We, we can't be confused about these things. We need to be rooted and grounded in the word of God. So if you're going, Pastor, you've preached seven messages and I'm still confused, then open your Bible and read your Bible and become clearly convinced of what the word of God has to say. Be sober-minded, not distracted or confused. Endure suffering. Many of us, all of us, at one point or another, if we've not already, we are going to endure suffering because of this. It's not like things are going to get better in the world around us. They're only going to continue to get worse. And so, brace for impact. There's probably going to be some suffering and some persecution coming your way. Do the work of an evangelist. In other words, have the perspective that causes you to work. The perspective is that which there is a lost and dying world around us. I need to live on purpose in such a way that every word and every action that I take, it points people to repentance towards Christ. Do the work of the evangelist. Have the perspective of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This is a ministry that God has invited you into and requires of you. I've been reading this book recently. Uh, I mentioned it a few weeks ago, Born Again This Way by Rachel Gilson. Really would encourage you to read it. So far of all the books that I've read, I'm not quite done with it yet, but this has been the most life-giving book and the most clarifying book that I've read out of all of them. I'm very appreciative of all of the books that I've suggested, but this one is a story of Rachel Gilson, who is same-sex attracted, 
And before she went off to college, was in a relationship with uh, her high school sweetheart, and she was an atheist. She really valued uh, the fact that she was an intellectual, and and Christians were weak-minded, basically. And so she goes off to, I believe it's Yale, she goes off there, and in that process, her relationship with her girlfriend dissolves, and she finds out quickly that she's not the smartest person on campus, not even close. So the two things that she held as the biggest idol in her life, her, her, how intellectual she was and her, her lesbian relationship, the two things that were like her became, uh, just fell apart. And so she's struggling with all of this and her desires and, and all the things that are coming her way and eventually uh, she gives her heart to the Lord she finds herself in church. She finds herself getting a mentor, an older lady, her name is Sylvia, that begins to mentor her and walk her through this. And she finds friends and she finds a church family and she, she discovers that, that the desires in her heart, that she's not evil because she's tempted, but her actions matter and so she wants to honor the Lord. All this stuff, great story. And again, so clarifying. Some of the confusion that maybe even I shared or, or maybe we're even in some of the books or blogs that we've read because none of them are perfect. So much clarity is brought in this book. But then about a year and a half or so into her walking with the Lord, she decides to go back home for a visit and she, her girlfriend reaches out to her. Say, hey, you want to get together? Hang out. And she's torn. She went to her mentor. What do I do? And her mentor's like, I don't think you should do that. And Rachel's like, no, I can handle it. It's okay. We're, we can just be friends. She's like, no, I'm seriously. Like, you're still new in all this. And I, don't, I wouldn't suggest that. I don't think you're strong enough. She's like, it's fine. And her mentor said, well, what happens if she tries to kiss you? And she laughed it off, basically. Like, that's not going to happen. She understands where I'm at. She understands I'm a believer. And it's not going to happen. So she goes home. They go hang out, and that did happen. They kissed, and they went home, and they slept with each other. And so now the next day, they're walking in a park, and she's incredible, feels all the condemnation and shame. She's wrestling. Do I even go back to my Christian friends? I've not even been a Christian that long. I could just walk away from it. I could rekindle this relationship. Like There's a thousand things echoing in her mind, and she eventually calls her mentor with tears in her eyes and, and owns up to it. And she's met right away with, I love you. Come home. I'm not ashamed of you. Let's talk about this. Let's grow. Let's, let's get some healing. Let's pray. Let's, let's do that. And, and her mentor began to kind of push back on her a little bit, saying, this is sin. You know it. We've, we've talked about it. You know the scriptures. Let's, let's, let's come back and let's make God the refocused priority of our hearts. She, she was kind, but her conversation led to Repentance. Part of this quote that I want to read to you, it's a portion from the book here, it's a little bit longer, but this is on the heels of Rachel writing how many times Christians try to clean up or solve God's bad image. And to be clear, the bad image that God has is not from God, it's actually believers who have terribly treated people in the LGBTQIA community. Right, so we try to have softer language or words. We try to be a little bit more accommodating than we should. We're always trying to kind of like with a good PR person, trying to rewrite the narrative, delete those bad tweets and cover up what we said a few months ago and just be better at it than we were a few years ago. We're trying to fix God's bad image. This is what Rachel, who now, and I want to be clear, she's now married and she has kids, married to a man with kids. She's very clear in her book that the proof of her submission to God and the victory of her submission to God is not married to a man with kids. 
Okay, that's really, she's really clear about that. The proof and the victory is that God has her heart. Her being married to a man and kids is not promised in the Bible. It happens, and she's thankful for it, but it's not the proof that God fixed her, that God solved the Rubik's Cube of her messed up situation, okay? She's really clear about that, so I don't want there to be any confusion. Let me read this portion of the book to, to you. But there's a word of warning here for those who find themselves on Sylvia's side of a phone call. So you and I, right? We believe what the word of God has to say. We, we are committed to doing the kindness that leads to repentance. She's saying there is a warning to you and to me who might be tempted to abandon scripture, might be tempted to soften it up, might be tempted to use confusing or fluffy language. There's a warning to us. Let me read what she says. I can't imagine the distress I would have felt had I confessed my sin and received back a reassurance that what I had done wasn't so bad. That I could have that life if I just baptized it in Christian colors and called it by Christian names. It would have kicked my knees out from under me when I already could barely stand. As far as I can tell, most people change their minds on the issue out of deep sympathy. Folks hate the historical mistreatment of gay and lesbian people. They hear and misinterpret Jesus' call to not judge. They believe that opening the door for same-sex romance reflects God's love because they've bought the cultural lie that only in marriage can adulthood and joy be achieved. People in this frame who want the best for their neighbors see the plausibility of what we might call revisionist readings of scripture. That is, the interpretation of the Bible that conclude that same-sex romance and sex are not wrong and that scripture supports monogamous same-sex faithful marriage. Such people have usually been exposed to biblical framing of sexuality that is all about no and not about God's greater yes to us in Christ. This leaves them aching for a better vision, and the revisionist view best matches the love songs and movies that speak to them. It's not hard to go to a Christian bookstore or website or find an emphatic teacher on this position. This is not new. The Bible's words on life and sexuality have offended every culture and every age, but people have as people have risen up to try to save God from his own bad image. What if it's not him who needs saving, but us? I mean, that was just a small portion of her story. Such strong words and a warning to us. In my mind, what many people in Rachel's scenario would have loved to her to say, it's okay, God loves you. You, you know, if God is love and you love her, then this is good. This is fine, it's okay, he'll understand. She's saying, please don't. For the sake of those people's hearts, please don't try to paint what is sin in any other light other than sin. Don't try to make it be wrapped in Christian colors or in Christian words. Stand strong with what you know to be true. We're not trying to save God from his bad image. We are trying to point people to the goodness of God. Stop trying to rewrite. Stop trying to give people what you think they want. What people need is Christ. What people need, everyone, gay, straight, we need 
to fall in the arms of a God that one, accepts us right where we're at, and two, because of his deep love for us, draws us closer to him and a deeper relationship with him. And every time that we get closer to God, our heart's desire should be to love and serve him more. Like my daughter Christina said, I don't do good things to get God to love me. I do good things because God already loves me. It's in response to his love that we're obedient, that we're repentant, and that we are submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, warns about being around people that are full of sin, that are unrepentantly full of sin. It says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. This is important. There are so many Christians and churches and pastors and leaders right now that have the appearance of godliness. They're doing social justice programs. They're helping out the poor and the needy. They're doing all of these things. They have the appearance of being Christ followers because they meet on Sunday and they have their prayer gatherings and they have their groups. They have the appearance, but they deny the transformative power of God. Baked into the message of Jesus Christ is that in all of our brokenness, he takes us where we're at and he transforms us and he delivers us out of our sin and into his glorious light. If we are not preaching the transformative power of Jesus Christ and the lordship and submittedness to Jesus Christ, then we have a form of godliness. We look like it, we sound like it, we post like it but we are denying the very power of God. And he says, if we're gonna be like that, that other Christians should avoid us. That they shouldn't be around us because we're not making disciples of Jesus. We're making disciples of a love story, a love song, a love movie, like she said in her book. It looks more like the cultural references of love than the real example of love, which is Jesus Christ, grace and truth. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 35. But, but what, what if people reject us? What if this means that my child no longer wants to speak to me or my friend is, is done with me because I'm a Christian who believes what the word of God has to say? Jesus says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, my prayer is you never have to come to this point. But the reality is, as we live practicing open house, arms open wide, living peaceably with all men as much as it's up to us, as we continue to leave the door open, if you want to meet, you want to talk, I'm here anytime that you need to. I, I love you and I'm for you and I want to talk to you about how much God loves you and how much he's for you. We leave those doors open. We live peaceably with people as much as it's up to us. But the reality is there might come a time where someone says that's not enough. You either fully accept and celebrate who I am and what I'm doing, or I'm going to have nothing to do with you, Christian mom and dad. I'm going to have nothing to do with you, Christian friend, Christian coworker. 
That time might come. Now, let that time not come because we're being mean and abrasive. We're being brutal. Again, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So we continue to love, we continue to be kind, but you might find yourself in a scenario where people are walking away from you because you're not celebrating them. So the question you have to ask yourself that I have to ask myself, as gut-wrenching as this is, and I hope, I pray this never happens with my children and me. I pray this never happens with people in this church and family members that we would walk away like this. But you have to ask yourself and settle in your heart if it were to come to that me being faithful to Jesus and his word and obedience and submittedness to him, if it comes between that and having to abandon scripture and abandon truth in order to keep a friendship, which friendship, which relationship is gonna win out? The horizontal relationship with other people or the vertical one with Jesus? I hope it never does. Let's not go into it assuming that's gonna happen. We expect and assume the best. But if someone says, if your child who is maybe has identified as transgender and they say, listen, parent, you either fully accept me or for me or you're against me, at some point you might have to say, we stand with what the word of God has to say. Our doors are always open. We love you. And anytime that you want to talk, we are available to talk, but we are not changing what we know to be true according to God's word, which never changes, and his character never changes. If it comes to that, are you willing to lay aside mother, brother, sister, father, children, friends, coworkers? Some of you'd be happy to get rid of some coworkers, but you know what I mean, right? Like, are you willing to do that for the sake of, of being submitted to Jesus Christ. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm telling you, I see especially parents that are willing to shipwreck their own faith so that they don't lose a relationship with their kid. What that is, in the clearest of terms, and again, I'm, I pray to God I'm never in your scenario if that's you. Please don't hear brittleness in my voice, compassion only. But what that is, if you are willing to walk away and abandon scripture for the sake of a child or any other relationship, that relationship has become an idol over God. And idol worship is strictly forbidden. It only separates us from our relationship with God. These are hard truths. Again, daily we need the Holy Spirit's guidance. Number two, repentance should be our message. Number three, boldness in the truth is required. And number four, I'll end with this. Jesus is our example of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. A lot of people will use Jesus as a crutch. I just want to love and minister like Jesus did. All right, so do I. Let's see how Jesus ministered. Verse two. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people, brought to him a woman caught in adultery. By the way, this is how most LGBTQI people feel regarding the church, that Christians have handled them, that they've been abused by them. They've been dragged out of their comfort zones, and they've been thrown before other religious people who want nothing to do but to harm them. You please understand that while we may have truth and truth stands and we never abandon it, that's why kindness has to come first. Because people immediately, if they hear you're a Christian, oftentimes assume that they are going to be mishandled and abused at, by your hand as a believer. They were thrown, she was thrown by these people. 
It says, and when they had set her in the midst, so she's surrounded by these people, verse four, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? And so they, they already have stones in their hands. They're ready. They want to follow what Moses said. And by the way, that wasn't a commandment to stone them. It, it, it was talking about what might be, what could be, but nonetheless, they're ready to kill him. They're ready to kill her. Let me just say this. Let's make sure that we don't use people that are caught up in any kind of sin, especially sexual immorality. Let's not use them as a pawn for our religious games. That's what these people were doing. They could care less about her. They wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted Jesus either to say, hey, adultery is no big deal. Let her do what she's going to do. Or they wanted Jesus to say, kill her. They were using her as a pawn in their religious games. Let's make sure that when we talk about LGBTQI people, that we're not using them as a pawn in our own conversations. Well, what they should do is this, and I think they need to realize that, and they need to get their heads on straight. No, no, no. These are human beings. Know them by name. Talk with them, not about them or to them. They're not pawns. They're people. What would you say? And it says this, verse six. This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. By the way, how we minister to people from this point forward, because the message series is almost done. We can't rely on Jerry Tice to keep knocking out message series once a year about this. Like, you guys have to take this message and live it out. I'm tired. I'm checking out after this for like a week, okay? Like, I love you guys, but I'm, you know, it's time for you to pick up the thing and carry it, right? So how you handle this moving forward greatly defines Jesus Christ to people. They were trying to get Jesus to define himself by his own words. How you live, preach, minister will define who this Jesus is to people long before they ever open their Bibles. But he, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. I'd love to know what he wrote. I have no idea. I've heard a lot of good messages on it, but no one knows. I love how he, how he did that, pretending like he didn't even hear, hear him. <laughs> what, a, what a boss move right there. Like, I'm just gonna ignore you. But you know what? There's actually a good lesson in that. Don't fall victim to the pressure of giving quick and perfect answers. I am telling you the best thing you can do if you don't know the answer is say, I don't know, but I'm committed to learning. In fact, would you want to learn with me? Can we go on this journey, scriptural journey together versus going, well, I tell you, I know what I would say and I know what I would do. Maybe it's better for you to be slow to speak and quick to listen and take time to pray about it, take time to read, take time to wrestle with it before you offer something up that you don't know what you're talking about. Verse seven, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. There's three quick things here that I want to point out. The first of which is judgment always begins with us first, believers. We read that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16 through 17. Judgment always begins in the household of the Lord first. Okay, that's the whole remove the plank before you can remove the speck. So Jesus is saying, hey, before you get ready to stone this lady, let me ask you, do you have any sin? This is a really good question to ask ourselves. Do you have any sin before you try to help somebody else out? The other thing that it says here is that Jesus did not say she has no sin. He said, do you have sin? 
Let he who has no sin throw or cast the first stone. He didn't poo-poo her sin. He didn't say, ah, it's not really that big a deal. Like, all things considered, it's not, you know, you know, it was consensual. She wanted it, he wanted it. So, you know, and no one's getting hurt, right? He didn't diminish what she did. He said, you have no sin, cast the first stone. You know what that requires? Jesus called those guys out, those religious leaders. But in the moment, Jesus used discernment and judgment to, ve- to reveal her heart to him and their hearts to him. If you want to minister like Jesus, you need discernment and you need judgment. This whole, uh, you, know, who, you know, judge not lest you be judged. It's talking about condemnation. We don't condemn people. We don't sentence them to life or to death because we think we're better than them. Judge not lest you be judged. Don't condemn. But Jesus discerns and Jesus does judge. That's how he came to that conclusion that yes, she is a sinner and so are you guys. So you who have no sin, go ahead and throw that first stone. The third thing is in light of your past, considering all the things that you've done, are you building bridges or are you building walls? Walls say, you know, you'll never be whole enough. You're not going to be able to understand. You have to make yourself perfect and clean before you can join my party and be a part of my church. You building walls or are you building bridges where you can connect with people going, you know what? I have a story and I have a testimony. You have a story. You have a thing to talk about. Let's, let's go there together. Let's learn and grow together. You know, this is hard. It's confusing. Where, where do you even go for this? I wish there was some sort of like amazing resource about building bridges that was available. I don't know. That you could just listen to on your mobile app. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, in case you haven't picked up on the humor, uh, there is a Building Bridges podcast that we do, Nate and I, and it's a great thing, and it leads, you know, has a lot of good conversations baked in there. I was just meant for a joke more than anything. All right, moving on. Verse eight. And again, he stooped down and run the ground, and those who heard it being convicted by their conscience, there's the kindness that leads to repentance, by the way. They were convicted. They heard the word of God, and they were convicted. It pricked their conscience, and they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest to the last. Can you imagine? Just close your eyes for a moment. No, no one look around. Just, just for a moment. You know you're dead. You're, you, you've committed the sin. The law says you can be stoned. You're going to be stoned. And even Jesus, this guy, just said, go ahead and stone her. If you don't have sin, throw it. With your eyes closed, you know you're dead in seconds. And it's not going to be a good death like a quick one. It's going to be a terrible death. With your mind in that space, can you imagine how terrifyingly beautiful it would sound when you begin to hear the rocks fall one after another from those men's hands? With your eyes open again. Guys, sometimes we try to hide and protect people from the truth of God. Sometimes we try to buffer them from it. But do you realize that when a Christian encounters somebody who's not a Christian and they walk with grace and truth, it's actually a beautiful sound. It may not be accepted day one as that, but that is the sound of life. It's the sound of a second chance. It's a sound of acceptance. And Jesus went alone. And, and, Jesus, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. 
when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, you know, it's interesting that when Jesus opens his eyes and he looks around, he sees that there was just him and her. It really represents two extremes that are found in the Christian circles, two ditches, if you will. The first ditch is we want to stone somebody to death. We want to kill them because their sin is somehow worse than our sin. And then in one moment, they went from that to dropping their stones and walking away. You realize something? I never mentioned, never saw this until I was preparing for this message. Jesus never said, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And if you do have sin, drop your rocks and walk away. He never said that. He just said, search your own heart. Their response to her was drop the rocks. He's like, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. I probably shouldn't do that. But then they left. These are the extremes. Oftentimes, you either want to kill people and condemn them and judge them in the wrong kind of ways with the wrong motive of the heart, or because we have unrepentant sin or we just have guilt and shame, we actually end up abandoning them to their sin. Those men could have stayed. They could have prayed together. They could have given her a hug. They could have listened to the words of wisdom from Jesus. They could have changed and go, you know what? This is a better way of ministry. But what they chose was to walk away. I am concerned that Christians repeat the same mistake over and over and over again. We either try to kill or we abandon people to the places of darkness and sin and shame. And we don't actually meet them where they're at and draw them towards the light. He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin more, no more. This, you want to minister like Jesus, this is, this is the perfect example. Grace, there's no con- condemnation. I don't condemn you. And truth, go and sin no more. Most Christians would have just said Grace. Hey, I don't condemn you. Or they would have just done truth only. You deserve to die. Jesus was both. Hey, you're a sinner, but I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. If we want to really be like Jesus, we are a go and sin no more kind of people. We are a I don't condemn you kind of people. The kindness of God, grace, leads people to repentance, truth. Grace and truth is who Jesus is, it's who we are called to be. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. To love like Jesus demands we help walk people out of darkness into his glorious light. Lord, I thank you for every person that's here. God, I ask that you help us to grow in this area. Lord, that we would be believers that are strong in our convictions. God, that we would be bold in knowing your word, proclaiming your word, living your word. Lord, that we would daily rely on your voice to lead and guide us, Holy Spirit, that we would not be so comfortable with our policies and our procedures and our plans that we can't hear from you and we can't share you with others. Lord, that the message of our hearts would be repentance, first for us, and then helping lead other people to repentance. And God, that you, as we recognize you in the word, in your word, God, that you would be our example and we would be their example of you, full of grace and truth. 
Lord, grow us in this as we make mistakes, as we fumble the ball, as we don't land it every single time. God, would you give us grace? Would you meet us where we're at and help us, Lord, to be better ministers of the gospel of reconciliation and grace than we have up to this point? Lord, take away the confusion. Lord, if we talk and there's confusion, in our own mind, if there's confusion, remove that. Bring precision clarity to what you have in our hearts, Lord, so that we can minister with confidence in you, Jesus Christ. I love you and I thank you, God, that you are with us every step of the way on this journey. In Jesus' name, amen.